Okay, welcome back. Today, <clears throat> continuing the reading of the book Nichinanda in Divine Presence. Today is class number nine. We took a break last week um, to talk about group process and uh, world events. Uh, and we're nearing the end of this book. And I believe, um, most likely, when I finish this book in the next few weeks, we're almost at the end. Uh, I will read somehow uh, from the uh, other book called Sky of the Heart, Jewels of Wisdom from Nityananda, which is um, a little bit more commentarial than the book or presentation of Chittakash Gita, which is the third of the major books, publications, documents that this website, nonduality.com, presents for Nityananda, uh, Chittakash Gita is basically straight utterances of Nichinanda coming out of trance. And trance meaning jhana, meaning high states of mind or awareness. Sky of the Heart, Jewels of Wisdom from Nichinanda, is, um, is a compilation, it seems to me, it's a compilation of some of Nichinanda's utterances and uh, songs or <laughs> speakings uh, that are put that were put into Chittakash Gita with commentary from um, Chetanyananda, I believe, with some stories of Nityananda, which I would like to read more of. And um, it's uh, sad <laughs> getting to the end of something beautiful at the end of this book uh, in Divine Presence. Uh, last time <clears throat> we began, or we ended, let's say in the fourth chapter of the second half called New Ashram at Kailash. It's not really exactly a different location. It's pretty close to the Ganeshpuri Ashram. Uh, that was 56 to 61 and now we are as approaching Nityananda's passing uh, in 61. The next chapter up is uh, the New Ashram at Kailash 1950 to 61. So <laughs> it just is after the chapter that started in 56, back to 50, to 61. 61 is when Nityananda passed. And we'll see all sorts of very interesting things, and then I'll bring in a couple of other sources <clears throat> that will explain more about one of the very famous people who came to visit him um, in that period, 50 to 61. Uh, a man who had a lot of effect globally on spreading Bhagavad Gita and Vedic teaching from India, but not necessarily well known today, but um, a very seems like a very fine fellow. So, chapter beginning or titled New Ashram at Kailas 1950 to 1961, <clears throat> the first few paragraphs will explain how Nityananda held certain views that other religionists don't that would be criticized by some. And who's right? <laughs> I don't know. You've got to figure it out yourself. Lots of people are convinced that their position is correct. Um, absolutely. Actually, I think that there's no provability. Um, I can say Nichinanda is greater than, greater evolved being than some fundamentalist preacher. Um, I have no proof. I can say that his perspective is um, wiser or more all-knowing um, than someone else's. Uh, 
Uh, I can fight about it. I can not fight about it. Uh, I can have some certainty, um, but I couldn't prove it, nor could the person who's opposing me prove their position, actually. And so Ra said, Ra's presentation or Ra's discussion, offering that they are offering truth without proof. Is there any proof that it's truth? No. <laughs> How do we know it's truth? I don't know. Some will say it's truth and some won't. Some say it's crazy, it's demonic. Some people will say it's uh, absolute truth. Some people um, don't know. Uh, understanding is not of your density, said Ra. <clears throat> and that's just an important point, and that's probably related to why Gautama advised monks and people not to argue, not to get caught in the thicket of views, not to um, get attached to favoring and opposing, not to uh, join with the factions who are factious, meaning quarrelsome and given to dissension, given to struggle intellectually. Um, because it's unprovable and um, everybody's got their own life to live and everyone will meet their karmic due after death and increasingly during the lifetime and um, you're on your own here <laughs> metaphysically meanwhile we may have close friends and love and this and that but uh, one is the sole creator of one's own karmic stream by activity of thought and word and deed in every single um, mm, dynamic, every single process that's known and unknown, conscious, subconscious, uh, associated with thought and belief, and then everything we say and do, all the decisions and all the utterances, um, mm, establishes our karmic stream for the future. So... <clears throat> Uh, the first few paragraphs are very interesting because you'll see how other traditions would diss him and some people listening might or some people uh, who want to be critical might um, but everyone has had everyone that I trust Gautama and Nityananda primarily um, don't get attached to argumentativeness and, and view and um, view is functional, but it's a, just a raft, like Gautama said. The whole Buddha Dhamma, the whole the whole of his teaching is a raft to get to the other side, or uh, for a functional purpose, not to be held eternally as an absolute truth either. So mm, humans are much more limited than they think, and human mind um, should not be deified, <laughs> nor should you... Uh, consider yourself finished in any way. I, I wouldn't. <laughs> These guys wouldn't either for themselves. So, New Ashram at Kailas, 1950-1961. I'll read it through, try to restrain myself from commenting in the middle. Uh, Nichinanda could be very modern in his views. Once a devotee with a growing family brought his fifth and youngest child to Ganeshpuri. Oddly enough, no one else was around. The master gave the baby his blessing and played with him for a while and then turned to address the father, saying, quote, Why must you reproduce like the cat family? Go and have an operation. Then, another time, 
On an evening in 1947, he broke ashram silence to speak about prohibition, meaning the uh, anti-alcohol legislation in the U.S. How, he said, quote, how is it possible to stop a poor man from drinking, he demanded. What can one offer a weary man who trudges home every night with little to feed his family and even greater debts? How should he forget his worries and fall asleep? Currently, every household in this region of India brews its own liquor from plantains, banana, make drunkenness a crime, but not drinking. Until people are properly fed and have healthy recreation, drinking will exist. End quote. <clears throat> In another instance, a mutton shopkeeper, meaning a seller of lamb, probably Muslim, decided his hereditary avocation was unclean, as the Hindus would all say, and some Buddhists, the Chinese Mahayanist type Buddhists. <clears throat> After much thought, <clears throat> he shut down his butcher shop and reopened it as a general store. The new enterprise, however, was a failure, and the man sought the master's advice. Nichinanda's advice was simple. <clears throat> the man should follow his true avocation and not be swayed by external considerations. In speaking to his devotee, he used the word danda in referring to the duty a person must perform in this lifetime. And I believe the phrase was, do your danda. And I'll get back to this also at the end. Lastly, <clears throat> there was a boy who wanted to become a pilot. When his, when his devotee parents disapproved, he appealed to Nichinanda, who took the son's side. The master told the parents not to worry about his safety. Accidents, he said, were more likely to occur on the ground. But another crisis arose when, during the boy's eye examination, doctors detected a condition that inevitably would lead to blindness. In despair, the boy returned to Ganeshpuri where, again, Nichinanda said not to worry. He then gave him a small bottle of oil to massage regularly into his scalp, and three months later, when he retook the eye exam, he was declared completely fit. M. D. Suvarna, who took most of the later photographs of Nichinanda, remembers one of the more remarkable visitors to Kailash, and I will talk about this a bit after the chapter. Swami Chinmayananda, and the, the Sanskrit word here is Chinmaya. Chinmaya, actually, um, according to the Wisdom Lib Sanskrit English Dictionary, consisting of pure intelligence, spiritual as the Supreme Spirit, uh, intelligence, spiritual, sp Supreme Spirit, um, Supreme Pure Spiritual Intelligence. And it actually fit this Swami very well. So, one of the more remarkable visitors to Kailash, Swami Chinmayananda, first came for darshan sometime around 1956. He returned often and frequently spoke of Nityananda to his own disciples, always calling him the living Shtita Prajna of the Bhagavad Gita. And I'll explain that later too one who never wavers from consciousness. It really could be one who is always um, one who always dwells in unbound awareness. One day in 1960 he decided to take his students to Ganeshpuri. Organizing a group of musicians for the occasion, 
The master received them with the honor due a visiting religious dignitary, which is something he never did for anyone, it seems. He first invited Swami Chinmayananda to address the combined assembly from a terrace of the newly opened Bangalorewala building, and then told the Swami to use the wisdom and power of Sarasvati, a Hindu deity, goddess, to spread the message of the Upanishads, which is what he did all his life. Humbly, Swami Chinmayananda replied that he and the others present were spiritual infants compared to the great yogi. He also said that anyone attempting to describe Nityananda to the world would be trying to write, quote, a saga of 100 Christs living together in one being, each exhibiting his wondrous powers to ameliorate the suffering of the poor. End quote. And <clears throat> again, I'll explain him later. Physically, Nichinanda was showing signs of age. By 1957, he's about 60 at that point, his teeth had deteriorated so much that two devotees threatened to fast if he did not have them removed. He finally agreed, but refusing the then typical anesthetic injection of cocaine, experienced considerable pain and bleeding. When the two devotees later offered him some food, he refused. Quote, he said, how can one eat when the teeth have just been removed? He said, quote, you may not realize it, but yogis do experience pain. The difference is they pee, they pay it no heed. <clears throat> um, I would think that other yogis could turn off the, the sensory receptors, and I'm imagining he could too. So when he said, do experience pain, um, this is not the same as us experiencing pain in our conception of paying it no heed um, while we're consciously feeling excruciating pain. I think that it was closer to a neutralization of sensation. Going on, the relationship between the spiritual and the physical was sublimely simple, at least for Nityananda. When some devotees complained that travel conditions and old age hindered them from more frequent visits, he countered that his physical presence was unnecessary for their spiritual growth. Quote, Devotees will find this one, himself, will find this one wherever they meet and talk. Fish are born, live, and die in the holy Ganges without attaining liberation, but devotees have only to think of the Guru. He had been saying this for years. And when asked about the benefits of performing selfless service, which is seva, the master would reply, quote, Who wants it? God? Of course not. People only do it to get something in return. You should dutifully do your own work to the best of your ability without seeking a reward. That is the highest seva, or service, you can render. The only thing required for spiritual growth is a detachment from worldly pleasures, that's Vairagya. If you don't listen to this, you will fail in the end. And so, do your danda, do what seems to be your present moment, present life circumstances, responsibility, obligations, to self and other, generally, uh, one's work, one's family, one's home, one's neighborhood, one's community, to whatever degree it's real and in front of you. It's not the same as looking for something to do. It's looking to see what is my just and fair and true responsibility and obligation 
in my current life situation. That's called do your danda, I'd say. That's seva. And then also there is vairagya. And so do your danda and um, detachment from worldly pleasures. It's really um, the detachment from worldly pleasures is a detachment from attachment. It doesn't mean rejection per se. It might. Everybody should do whatever they want, and I'm no guru and I'm no expert on anything. But as far as I can interpret vairagya as detachment from worldly pleasures, it's a detachment from excessive attachment, a detachment from excessive over from overvaluation, from fascination, from entanglement, <clears throat> from thirsting and craving and hungering and um, depending on any physical uh, or social pleasure. And again, so seva, do your danda, service is do your danda, your rightful responsibilities, and vairagya, or right detachment from uh, physical, social, mental, emotional um, entanglement, freedom from entanglement. If you don't listen to this, you will fail in the end, which means you'll get stuck and messed up going on. There's an asterisk here explaining that. <clears throat> the Master said this over and over again throughout the years, um, particularly about detachment. He said that the thoughtless state, the state of detachment, vairagya, is the highest state. So then we're talking about real vairagya that's associated with in the mind, uh, freedom from grasping, aversion and ignorance associated with becoming mental uh, mind process body, mind, spirit, mind, process, radical detachment, non-entanglement from the mind itself. He said the thoughtless state, right? <laughs> freedom from, uh, from proliferation. Thoughtless state. Freedom, a, a quiet mind. The state of detachment, that's his understanding of true detachment, is the highest state. How can there be desire in that, in this, in the state of detachment, right? In that state, how could there be desire uh, based in thought won't arise. It is not the world the yogi gives up. It is, it is the desire for worldly sense pleasure. The true yogi is full and content whether he is a pauper or a rich man. Meaning, he could be a rich man and a yogi. Oh ho. If pleasurable things come your way, experience them, but never go looking. Always be content in yourself wherever you are, and whatever your circumstances. <clears throat> I, I have a little different take on that, but I'll do that later. One day, a devotee saw that Nityananda's feet were extremely swollen and asked about it. <clears throat> he said, people come here for some benefit, he told her, and then, quote, he quote, and then leave their desires and difficulties at this one's feet. While the ocean of divine mercy washes away most of these tensions, a little is absorbed by this body, a body assumed only for their sake. Whenever Nichinanda intervened on a devotee's behalf, he always gave destiny the upper hand. During the monsoon of 1959, a long line of devotees and petitioners waited outside for their turn to enter the ashram. <clears throat> the wife of an old Gujarati devotee pleaded with Suvarna to be allowed inside as the doorkeeper, Suvarna, was about to open the doors, Nichinanda shouted at him to stop, and he did. But as the woman kept calling through the window, 
and Nichananda continued shouting at him, Suvarna, Suvarna grew agitated, throwing open the doors. He nervously admitted a group that included the Gujarati couple. She waited until the others had departed and then begged Nichinanda to heal her husband, who was obviously gravely ill. He was silent for some time before saying, quote, Take him first to the hot springs and then to the dispensary for an injection. Greatly relieved, the woman thanked the master and, half carrying her husband, left. However, en route to the kuns, or the, the baths, she spotted the dispensary, dispensary and, deciding it more convenient to stop there first, took her husband inside for his injection. They then proceeded to the hot springs where, upon entering the water, the old man died. <clears throat> because uh, she didn't follow the instructions to the letter, and um, it, a magical, uh, what could be called a magical contract what it was agreed upon. She asked for his help. He uh, offered it upon condition of her fulfilling a certain set of activities, which are not too onerous at all. <laughs> at all. He's not asking, he's not getting much back for his effort. It's probably effortless effort, but uh, a kind of magical or metaphysical contracting seems to be in evidence, I'd say. And when one breaks it, the contract breaks. When one doesn't fulfill their side of the agreement, the contract is broken metaphysically. Not perhaps, not by Nichinanda's whim, but by a higher force, which is the lock-in of divinity or universal power or intelligent energy or metaphysical uh, karmic justice somehow, a lock-in is broken when the person rejects um, obedience yeah, obedience to the requests or recommendations or uh, conditions set by Nityananda to affect getting what they want. And she didn't and they didn't, and he died. Going on, it was in the early 1920s, way back, following his studies in England, that Dr. M. B. Cooper received from a Himalayan saint the secret preparation for a drug with broad curative properties. The doctor, M. B. Cooper, spent, sounds like a Westerner, spent the next, de next decade studying the compound, which yielded astounding results in 1959, after hearing his friend and colleague, Dr. Diodar, speak of Nityananda, Dr. Cooper asked to accompany him to Ganeshpuri. He wanted to talk to the yogi about the future of the drug. This is some secret drug with broad curative properties. Arriving, they found Nityananda seated in his room. Dr. Cooper gazed in silence as tears streamed down his face. Dr. Cooper's face. After a time... Dr. Diodar led him away to a restaurant where, over a cup of tea, he reminded his friend about mentioning the drug. Dr. Cooper shook his head. You come here so often, he said, that you only see his outer form, but I saw a dazzling crystal in his head. In a split second, I was overwhelmed at his purity and acutely aware of my own separation from the divine. I could only stand before him and cry. Dr. Cooper was correct. Nityananda's unconcern with his physical body 
was reflected in his devotees' constant awareness of it, and they were perplexed by his physical body process. By 1945, although he ate very little, the yogi was clearly and mysteriously putting on weight. In those days, overnight, de overnight guests cooked for themselves, always offering something to Nityananda, who declined more often than not. In fact, meals were not organized in the ashram until the early 1950s, when the old west room was converted to a simple kitchen. Nonetheless, by 1960, his body had grown to huge proportions. His eating habits had not changed. If anything, now being toothless, he ate less. So he's not eating. He's hardly eating anything, and his body's growing and growing. Alarmed, four devotees finally voiced their concern. The first was Sandao Shetty, who, as a youth, had been fond of gymnastics and feats of strength, so a strong man. The master told him that his heaviness, this is a very interesting situation, this paragraph here. So, to Sandao Shetty, who as a youth had been fond of gymnastics and feats of strength, the master told him that his, Nityananda's heaviness, was due to lack of exercise. The second inquirer was Rao, who will be recall, recalled as suffering from chronic malaria. Nityananda told him that his swollen stomach was the result of a malaria-induced enlarged spleen. The third devotee, a practitioner of pranayama breathing exercises, was told his size was the result of breath retention, holding the breath as pranayama practice. Finally, Mrs. Muktabai came to him full of concern for his health and comfort. To her, he said that the love of his devotees had settled around his gigantic belly. Regardless of cause, by the time Nityananda took Mahasamadhi in, in August 1961, he was once again thin. And so, clearly, some changes in his body were associated with his preparation for leaving the Incarnation, I'd say. And um, you can see that he's explaining it differently to, to the predilections of the various devotees who are coming to him. <laughs> and so he's really saying, um, uh, your karma I've absorbed. <laughs> it's your karmic... Aspects of your karmic stream uh, have filled me. And uh, your process is my process as, as much as, as my, to a degree that I myself can't say. I mean, Scott, I can't tell you. I don't know. But it looks to me like a uh, substantial aspect of their karmic process he had uh, absorbed, internalized, and were responsible for his growing uh, girth and size. And um, it's a kind of a karmic, uh, voluntary karmic absorption, karmic transfer. Only the most high teachers could do such a thing, actually. Finally, ending the last, ending the, the chapter here. Feeding the poor was a standard occurrence at Kailas because the food offerings brought by visitors to Ganesh Puri were distributed to, to local poor children. So Kailas is the new ashram at Ganesh Puri facility or site. In later years, as the number of devotees grew, so did the piles of flowers and fruit baskets. Most were distributed as usual, but Nichinanda allowed some to rot, and then ordered them buried. One day, Sandao Shetty ventured to ask about this apparent waste. He was told, it does not go to waste. Those for whom it is meant are consuming it. 
And then last paragraph of the chapter. In 1958, Nityananda asked that the poor children of Ganeshpuri be fed on a permanent basis, and it was done. Within three years, a hundred children a day were receiving morning meals. Within 20 years, meaning to 1978, within 20 years to 1978, the numbers surpassed 700 a day. Today, besides the children, meals are offered several times monthly to the region's Adivasi, which is a tribal group. Nearly 2,500 tribal people shunned by other communities um, are served several times monthly. The ashram coffers are always full, and not surprisingly, not surprisingly, with unsolicited donations for food. This, to me, is the most um, basic, fundamental, foundational service one can do, is feed the poor. I believe Ye- Yeshua said that. I don't know if it's Yeshua or Yeshua, but I prefer that name for Jesus, and I believe Yeshua um, said that too. Um, I think, personally, there's nothing more holy in the most straightforward way of physical service than to feed the poor. And that's exactly what he did. And so let me look through a little bit of um, what I consider some major points in this chapter. His, um, very, his being, very quote, very modern in his views. What does it mean? Well, India <laughs> is um, quite split uh, culturally, I'd say, between uh, traditionalists and modernists. The modernists uh, are in favor of all sorts of things that the traditionalists reject strongly. Uh, one of the modernist perspectives would be um, either abortion or um, voluntary uh, what sterilization or operation so as to no longer be able to reproduce or make babies. And Nityananda seems to have no problem with that with some in some cases. Yeah, okay. There's nothing wrong with that operation to stop having children because clearly you and your wife are unable to do it. I mean, it seems to me. This is all my interpretation. Uh, it seems <laughs> you two are unable to do it without that or that would be helpful to you. And therefore there's nothing wrong with it. Even though the traditional traditionalist will quote chapter and verse or twist chapter and verse of some document, maybe the Puranas or the Gita or somewhere, and say that's evil, that's sinful, you can't do it. Likewise, drinking, right? Uh, there are people who, I mean, the fourth or fifth of the five Panchashila ethical, moral uh, rules, regulations, precepts, of the five precepts in Buddhism, one of them is um, about drinking or drugs or intoxicants. Um, some people will interpret it, I mean, the monks, obviously, traditionally, <laughs> the real monks from Theravada countries, I'd say, don't drink alcohol, period, um, or drugs, I think. However, Thailand is a little different, it depends on the gazillion variations. Um, modern people, modern Buddhists, certainly uh, <laughs> uh, Vajrayana, Vajra Datu, Dharma Datu, Trungpa Rinpoche, Sakyong's group are known to be heavy uh, drinkers, Trungpa Rinpoche's group. 
uh, other Buddhists um, disdain that. Um, but Nichinanda's position is not that um, drinking is spiritual practice, but it's not evil for those that, that have a very painful life. Until people are properly fed and have healthy recreation and are not uh, poor without, uh, without enough money, uh, drinking will exist. And therefore, it's okay. It's not a sin in certain conditions as um, a relief from um, endless pain and stress uh, of poverty. A weary man who trudges home every night with little to feed his family and even greater debts. So that looks very compassionate to me and the many traditionalists of Hinduism and Buddhism and Christianity and Mormonism and many other groups and Islam who might say it's haram, it's a sin, it's a breaking of the rule, it's a in it's a divinely divinely punishable um, I think um, are missing something actually and it could be missing <laughs> compassion and then there's meat and so the mutton shopkeeper probably Muslim he was told uh, apparently that his job his avocation his career his profession is unclean it's unclean said they probably strongly. Uh, I just had a discussion last night with somebody who's a follower of Summa Ching Hai. Summa Ching Hai is the founder of a group called Supreme Master, Supreme Master Television. And she, they are hardcore vegetarians. Hardcore. And um, this woman was blasting me with um, chapter and verse from her teacher about the evils of, veg uh, evils of meat eating. And um, was completely <laughs> unable to even listen to what I was saying. She couldn't even answer a question. So, fine. Um, do your own thing. But Nityananda is certainly not coming down against me. And I think Gautama was criticized widely at the time for not being vegetarian. Ooh. And, and not even being an ascetic. Like, you know, they actually ate what was given according to what they wanted. The uh, tradition, that's the Theravadan way today. Uh, meat, no meat, doesn't matter, so long as, one, you don't kill the animal, number two, you don't have it, call it to be killed for yourself, and number three, you don't know, you're not knowingly aware that the meat, the animal, was killed for you. Otherwise, then, it's okay to eat it. Some people say, oh, well, that keeps them going on with their killing. Well, maybe there's more going on than you think. Hmm? <laughs> How about that, Earth human? There may be more going on than you think. Now, I don't mean the people listening, generally, who I think are value, you value open mind. I mean, I don't know. The real matter is that most people, modernists and traditionalists, religionists, and atheists and skeptics and scientists and scientists, scientifics or scientisms, the people, the scientific who follow scientism, think they know certainty, think they have certainty. There's a lot of that, you know. And so, Nishinanda said anything's possible. That means also, as Ross said, anything is acceptable at the right time in the circumstance, potentially. I don't know. Do you know all? <laughs> there are a lot of people who are absolutely convinced that they know what they are saying with 100% certainty, 
and they have arrived at final conclusions. Really? <laughs> uh, Wilhelm Reich wrote a book called Listen, Little Man. <laughs> well titled. So, the Muslim shopkeeper, who presumably was a decent fellow, um, by his father, became a butcher and was told that's unclean and um, <clears throat> then stopped it. Then it was a fail. His new job was, his new career, his new shop was a failure. He asked Nichinanda. Nichinanda said you should, I mean, this is the write-up, follow his true avocation. Being the son of a father who was a butcher, a, a Muslim son of a Muslim father as a butcher, was his, quote, true avocation, so it seems. And that means his do his danda. And his danda, therefore, was to be what a traditionalist would say in his in his in, in Muslim Islam, to be his danda, his obligation to follow his father's avocation. Uh, but he was quote swayed by external considerations, meaning the teaching of Hindus or maybe Muslims, but probably Hindu people, who said that's unclean and evil. It may be unclean in some way. I could see that. Yeah, smell a butchery. It's a nasty kind of place. Yeah. But it may well be, or the explanation of how it is indeed his danda, his obligation, his dharma, uh, his right livelihood. In Buddhism, it's considered wrong livelihood to be a butcher, as far as I can tell. Meanwhile, they eat meat, the Theravadans. And so, if it's given. You know, some people will say, <laughs> that's, uh, that's uncool. That, uh, that's kind of uh, tricky to say. Uh, being a butcher is wrong livelihood, but we will eat the meat that we don't know was killed for us if we didn't kill it um, from a butcher. Presumably, the people bought their food from a butcher. So it's a little funny there. Um, it could make sense, and uh, some people will say, uh, to hell with all of that, and you're all crazy and wrong. Okay, fine. Go your own way. But here, it seems that what many religionists would call a wrong livelihood and unclean and dirty and sinful and evil and karmically binding Nityananda said was his dhamma or his dharma or his danda and so he said danda in referring to the duty a person must perform in this lifetime and then uh, there's the case of the boy who wanted to be a pilot not what a traditionalist would advise his son and Nityananda clearly helped him not only not only reassured the parents it'll be okay, um, it's not unsafe, uh, he also seemed to be, hmm, by that, by this particular metaphysical contracting, gave the boy a small bottle of oil to massage into his scalp. Would that work for everybody? Probably not. Would it work um, if you did it yourself? Probably not. In that case, it worked because of this metaphysical contracting. So that's how I see it. And then the boy was fine, and off he went, and um, became a pilot. Then there's the story of Chinmayananda, and um, maybe I can stretch out this reading <laughs> and only end up uh, reading this chapter today, because there's a lot in it, and also I don't want to leave the story, and um, I miss my teacher. So, or... Uh, 
I miss this incarnation of the Logos. Uh, Chinmayananda was one of the very, very few who were accorded great honor in visitation during the visitation to Nityananda. Why? Not because Nityananda put him above himself, not at all. Nityananda, you know, Nityananda is the host everywhere, all the time. Everyone around him always is guest, host to guest. He's always the host. And Chinmayananda called him a living Shtita Prajna. Shtita, shtita Prajna um, is an interesting word. Prajna is wisdom or discernment. Very common Prajna Paramita, the Paramita or high development or value, virtue of Prajna, wisdom, discernment. Uh, shtita is, is sort of the one who's always there. There's an article that is not particularly profound, but um, interesting about it. And it's just another take from probably a much more materialist or much more common fellow than uh, Chinmayananda about Shtita Prajna from Economic Times, Economic Times, India Times, February 27, 2016. The author P.D. Shastri wrote and this is the connection with Bhagavad Gita, which is good because it'll bring us to Chinmayananda, the, the Swami who was accorded great honor. P.D. Shastri wrote, The Bhagavad Gita emphasizes the importance of serenity, even in the thick of action. Krishna discusses the characteristics of the Stita Prajna. So this is then Chinmayananda um, giving Nityananda an epithet of... Krishna from Bhagavad Gita of being a Shtita Prajna. The person of stable temper, the epitome of human virtue, Arjuna asks Krishna how a Shtita Prajna conducts himself. He is told that such a person's conversation is joy to the ears, that he speaks the truth yet does not hurt anyone's feelings, that he does not bring an illusory pleasure through flattery. The shtita prajna is stable. He is not prey to random gusts of passion, but sticks to righteous behavior, having overcome all desires. So that's really the end of the path. At the same time, he does not surrender himself to inertia or inactivity, but throws himself into action. Bhagavad Gita is all about that. It's a sort of a kama, um, kama yama. <laughs> uh, uh, there's pranayama, or there's uh, the different yogas. So while there's raja yoga, or meditative, jnana yoga, or mental study, mentally developed, mental process development yoga, there's also uh, karma yoga. Karma, not kama really. Kama is the Pali, but karma yoga, Sanskrit, is the yoga or spiritual path associated with activity, with action, right action. He does not surrender himself to inertia or inactivity, but throws himself into action. He's not driven by the psychological burden of the goal, but rather by the imperative of effort. The value, the value of the karma activity itself. Since he is nish kama, nish uh, basically is a negation of the kama kama desire, desire Sanskrit, different than kama in Pali, meaning uh, karma in Sanskrit. So there's karma in Sanskrit, which in Pali is kama, and then there's kama, 
which is uh, Sanskrit for desire or um, lust. Since he is nishkama, without desire, he is neither shattered by failure nor elated by success. To him, victory and defeat, pleasure and pain, honor and dishonor, friend and enemy are all alike. Hmm, looks like the eight worldly wins there. He judges himself not by the fickle opinions of others, but by whether or not he has fulfilled his dharma. That's the answer. The ethical path that he has laid down for himself. To strain, and this is uh, his add-in, to strain every nerve in the cause of right effort, but never to be attached to its fruit, is the Gita's preferred way, for there is no happiness for one whose mind is disturbed by fears, anxieties, and tensions. The shtita prajna, having rid his mind of blind craving, tanna, is no slave of passion, raga. The Gita, Bhagavad Gita, says that happiness runs away from one who desires it, happiness runs after him who wants nothing. Very deep, actually. So, thank you to P.D. Shastri, whoever you are. Um, <clears throat> and so, Arjuna asking Krishna about Shtita uh, Prajna, a very spiritual, metaphysical version of Chong's um, uh, Confucius, talking about the superior man, or the I Ching, talking about superior man. Confucius, talking about the gentleman. Uh, Chen, um, sort of the man of righteousness. Uh, this is a metaphysical version, uh, but you can see right speech, conversation, joy to the ears. Speaking truth, but doesn't hurt people's feelings, right? So, um, kindly or uh, pleasing speech, not, not divisive nor flattering, um, not uh, swayed by uh, desire and aversion, sticks to righteous behavior, overcomes all desires. Of course, that's the end of the path. And so <laughs> anyone who's listening, me too, we're not at the end, so we still have desires. And so it's navigating distortion in a non-distorted way, taking a non-distorted approach to distortion which is the meeting of distortion or desire or grasping aversion ignorance uh, with love wisdom as best as we can. And I think the raw material has a lot to say to add in to these path-centered teachings of Gautama and Nityananda. At the same time, he doesn't surrender himself to inertia or inactivity, but throws himself into action. That's my failing. I like inactivity. <laughs> I am attached to formlessness very much. He's not driven by psychological burden of the goal, but but imperative of effort. Um, this is sort of ceaseless activity in service to all without stress or urgency. He's not really driven by anything, but uh, endlessly works on behalf of all. Uh, but not in a hasty, rushed, anxious, stressed way. Then without desire. You see, this is where Hinduism got into trouble. They, they sort of um, speak rightly about the goal, but presume that, that those that manifest aspects of the goal have reached the goal. Uh, they don't have the discernment to realize that all sorts of people who are very well developed are not finished. <laughs> yes, they're very well developed. That doesn't mean they're finished. There's a big difference 
between high development and complete and perfect enlightenment finished with incarnation in the octave. Now, maybe they couldn't have known that, but they could. And um, we can know that, and I think it's true. Uh, victory, and then we get to what looks like a rundown of a Hindu approach, a Hindu presentation, uh, or a Bhagavad Gita-oriented approach, uh, presentation of freedom from the eight worldly winds. Right? Eight worldly winds, pleasure and pain, which he wrote. Um, gain and loss is the other two, which he didn't write. Uh, which could also be victory and defeat, right? I gained victory, I lost, and was defeated. Then, honor and dishonor, and then friend and enemy, it actually was um, praise and blame. And so this is <laughs> pretty much uh, uh, his um, modification of the Buddhist eight worldly winds, which one who's really shtita or well settled in freedom from mental proliferation and desirousness, the grasping aversion ignorance and attachment to anger and irritation, irritability and attachment to hungering and thirsting and pretty clear discerning, uh, that one would be relatively stable, centered in quiet mind, equanimity, and um, f a significant freedom from desire. Not total, but significant then that one would judge himself, not by what you say, but by truth. By whether or not he's fulfilled his dharma. The, full, the truth, as best as he, he or she can tell. Have I uh, done, my dan, done my danda? And so Nityananda is talking about, do your danda. Is this fulfilled his dharma? It's totally in line with Bhagavad Gita. And that's one's sense of ethical um, responsibility, ethical self-responsibility. So moral self-assessment is where, where, we <clears throat> where we depend rather than others' opinions. You think I'm great? He thinks I'm terrible. Fine. What's true? I better figure it out myself. That's <clears throat> self-examination, right? A, a certain version of... Um, Self-inquiry, ahamvichara, ahamvichara, as uh, Ramana Maharshi taught, a certain version of ahamvichara, ahamvichara, being uh, moral self-assessment, self-assessment of one's relative uh, degree of indeed um, fulfilling my obligations and responsibilities, and um, that includes right livelihood, right action, right speech. Um, and a balance between activity and rest, and uh, giving and being, or doing and being. <clears throat> uh, and so, yet the Gita's emphasis is really activity. It's really a karma yoga presentation, and bhakti yoga, karma yoga, to strain every nerve in the cause of right effort. I don't think that <laughs> Nityananda would say he's straining every nerve in the cause of right effort. He's at one with right effort. Not attached to fruit is the Gita's way. And so the final phrase here is beautiful, I think. Happiness, the Gita said that. Happiness runs away from one who desires it. Happiness runs after him who wants nothing. And so the one that deserves the most is the one that asks the least. The one that gets the most is the one who's given the most. Really. And though that's beautiful, <laughs> I think, 
And then we go back to the paragraph. Uh, Chinmayananda was treated with great little bit of pomp and circumstance uh, when he visited and called Nityananda a hundred Christs living together, each exhibiting wondrous powers to ameliorate the sufferings of the poor. And that's just what he was doing. The Wikipedia page on this fellow, Swami Chinmayananda Saraswati, or Swami Chinmayananda, was born as a regular fellow, Balakrishna Menon, was a Hindu spiritual leader and teacher who inspired formation of Chinmaya mission. And so his name being Chinmaya doesn't mean that it's his mission particularly, but he, his ordination name, in whatever order that was, was um, spiritual intelligence. And he looks like a very smart and high, highly developed soul. And so Chinmaya Mission was a worldwide non-profit organization to spread the knowledge of Advaita Vedanta and Bhagavad Gita and Upanishads and other Hindu scriptures from 1951 onwards. So he had just started when he went to Nityananda in the 50s. He spearheaded a global Hindu spiritual and cultural renaissance that popularized the religion's esoteric spiritual, scriptural texts, teaching them in English all across India and abroad. And so 300 centers in India and internationally, he wrote 95 publications and um, was a visiting professor of Indian philosophy at different universities around the world. Interestingly, um, if in his bio, what we see is that in 1936, so um, in his student years or when he was young, he actually wasn't religious. Uh, in 1936, uh, years before he met Nityananda, he was 20 years old. When he was 20 years old, he visited Ramana Maharshi, and that's uh, Advaita Vedanta, the Renaissance of Advaita Vedanta. By Chinmayananda's later personal accounts, when Ramana Maharshi looked at him, he experienced a thrill of spiritual enlightenment, which at the time he promptly rationalized away as being mere hypnotism. And so, despite himself, he <laughs> was able to uh, get out of his materialist, atheistic, skeptical positions in later years. Although, when he was 20, meeting such a one as Ramana Maharshi, uh, he um, materialized, <laughs> scientized away his joy his experience of joy or bliss, quote, thrill of spiritual enlightenment. So you see how people, whoever wrote that, you know, was just a little sloppy. So he was, he got enlightened? Uh, no. <laughs> he had some kind of uh, contact with intelligent affinity or moment of bliss in union beyond mind and self or separative self uh, that his mind couldn't understand. <laughs> Or someone will, some people will agree. Yeah, he was right. He was hypnotized by that evil Ramana and uh, later became completely insane and superstitious. Some people will think that. Good for you. <laughs> Have a good time and see where that leads you. You'll um, find where it leads you. And so he, um, despite um, psychologizing 
a spiritual experience, which a psychologist will say is an accurate understanding, <laughs> often, <clears throat> and a spiritualist will say is um, um, the conscious mind unable to experience uh, and to cognize more than it to to cognize more than its current opinions to go beyond current worldview. His current worldview at that time of age 20 didn't include um, uh, Shaktipat or transmission of energy or modification of consciousness or higher states or higher dimensions or expanded awareness. He didn't know that. Only later he did. Meanwhile, um, he was highly respected by Nityananda, not considered superior, but, but he was encouraged, and that's exactly like Chong Su saying, when it's straight, I help it along. And he was very straight and did really, uh, presumably, excellent work globally. And Nityananda knew that, obviously, as he knows most everything, and um, encouraged him highly. Uh, that must have been quite a thing for his followers to see Nityananda, who Chinmayananda understood rightly was way beyond him, which is true, respecting and honoring their teacher. That redoubled their faith and commitment and trust in their teacher, Shraddha, faith, and um, strengthened the organization, which strengthened their ability to do service, and that helped many people. So, um, Nityananda knows what he's doing. Then, the dynamics of his aging, and... Um, could he have manifest a body that lived 500 years perfectly? I guess so. Uh, it never seems to be done. Uh, Li Qingyun, Li Qingyuan, Chinese Taoist um, military advisor, uh, herbalist, Qigong practitioner, Li Qingyuan, uh, presumed to have lived 250 years. Maybe. Did. There's a, you can see on Wikipedia some signs some pages about him. But he didn't look too good at the end. And Nityananda's body fell apart at the end. And one can say, ah, yeah, you see, he's a fraud because he didn't magically maintain, uh, you know, rosy-cheeked youth of 16 for 100 years. Or we can look in other ways. <laughs> like, he wore out that body. And who? why should he live 100 years with a perfect body? Why? to show you that he can do it? That's not important. Why? Well, um, I presume he had better understanding, uh, better understanding of everything than me, and uh, better things to do than maintain some perfect physical body, because the body is not important, and I think that's part of the reason that great teachers um, age normally. That it just doesn't matter whether they're here 60 or 160 years. It just doesn't matter. What matters is that catalyst is used well, that one continues learning, growing, helping. That's it. And continues the evolution of mind-body-spirit and learn the way of love and wisdom and balance and all the dynamics of path that we know. It just doesn't matter whether they're here 60 or 160 years. And that's why Higher Self pulls the plug on souls that are um, in, a, in a downward spiral in terms of karmic accumulation, and they die young. How strange. Or they get killed. Something happens. Something, an external agent 
could be said to be fulfilling higher self mandate in some cases, in my interpretation, that some souls are taken out of here fast because they're screwing up. Other souls have a long life because they're doing real well, meaning using Catalyst for learning, growing, helping. Um, but I think the teachers that are really great beings, um, third stage, enlightened and beyond, non-returner, living from sixth density or Atman and up, um, their thinking of the body is different than ours, and their thinking of health is different than ours. Uh, and um, in, in many ways, letting their bodies fall apart, which is the natural progression of matter, um, is a teaching that de-emphasizes the importance of physicality, I'd say. And so, his teeth fell apart, and he got very large. And um, he also was, again, um, as I was saying, um, de-emphasizing the uh, importance of the, the, the nature of physicality, de-emphasizing and, and putting physicality in its place. Yeah, we have a physical body. Yeah, it's good to be healthy. No, we shouldn't be here forever. And no, maximal physical health is not the purpose of incarnation. And every physical body will fall apart. And that's fine. And so, anyway, um, he said, also, his own physical presence was unnecessary for others' spiritual growth. This is all bhakti, bhaktipad people, devotees who want to be near him for their own spiritual advancement. Uh, and he's saying, um, devotees have only to think of the guru. Devotees will find this one wherever they meet and talk. So, come together, talk of him, talk of yourself, talk of the path, think of him, if you wish, and um, he'll be there. Or you'll benefit without his physical presence. And then we've got the critical teachings about um, uh, spiritual duty, do your danda, like Bhagavad Gita, and then Vairagya. So do your danda, and um, uh, live with wise uh, detachment, renunciation. It doesn't mean, it means wise. <laughs> wise means wise for you. And so right livelihood for the son of the Muslim butcher was continuing his father's business as a mutton butcher. And so this is much higher, <laughs> I think, because we're talking about multi-incarnational karmic um, process. I mean, there's much going on. It's the same as 2150, John in the hospital, finding an older man in deep physical pain, saying telepathically, I can heal you, would you like me to heal you? Energetically. And the man telepathically, in the book, so it says, saying to him, no, don't you dare take away my physical pain. I need this for um, to, to clear a karmic basis um, by which I'll be harming something like a harmful to my wife several lifetimes in the future. Yeah, right. This is happening. <laughs> and there are very few spiritualists who know that. <laughs> yeah, the universe is like that. What's done today has most subtle roots to past lives and most subtle associations to future lives' potentials. Yeah, right. And so there's a lot more going on 
than most religionists and spiritualists and metaphysicians know as well. Hmm. And so he said, Nityananda also, the true yogi is content and full, full and content whether he's a pauper or a rich man, meaning you can be a rich man and be a true yogi. Whoa, how about that? Uh, easier to go through, easier for a camel to come through the eye of a needle than a rich man to go into heaven. Well, that's probably the case, but um, uh, a true yogi could be a rich man. Uh huh. So, got to put that together. <laughs> put it together. <laughs> Truth is everywhere. And if you only look in one tradition, you will take on the biases of that one tradition. If you look at multiple traditions, hopefully, ideally, we can see the biases of the different traditions and slowly grow a bigger view. So, this is, um, you know, uh, the race is not to the swift, but to who can endure it. The race is not to the swift, but who can endure it, sang, I guess, Dennis Brown. Uh, don't want to be a general. Um, yeah, who can endure it is also who can see widely um, and not be a narrow dogmatist. Don't be a narrow dogmatist. And so his body absorbed um, the stuff of the devotees. Uh, people come here for some benefit, Nityananda said, and then leave their desires at this one's feet. And his feet were swollen. While ocean of divine mercy, meaning, and you know, second principle, law of love, logoic, infinite love, that he <laughs> knew quite well, washes away most of these tensions, I mean, the tensions, the contractions of desirousness and difficulty, uh, which is all in the mind and the body, uh, of those that came to him. While infinite love washes most away, some is absorbed by the body, a body assumed only for their sake. And another point is that um, we need to keep going. And um, the guru comes and the guru goes. Tathagata, the thus come one, is the thus gone one. Um, greatness comes and goes. There's a rainbow and it disappears. There's a, a spark of epiphany and joy, and then the moment changes of phenomena or mind experience, and okay. Meanwhile, <laughs> if we do it right, we'll end up in an increasingly blissful, joyous, dimensional incarnation higher dimensional experience. And so, it's not endless suffering and 3D is just a stage, just like embodiment. Okay, <laughs> yes, I can go on endlessly, but I shouldn't. Or I will, but not here. So, next time we, we're slowing down and we'll go to the next chapter called Nichinanda's Passing, August 8, 1961. You can ask yourself, where were you? August 8, 1961. And um, we will continue the reading till the end of the book, and then uh, take up the next book. So please take good care of yourselves in this um, increased, uh, distre increasingly distressed social complex, global culture. Um, unfortunately, it'll get worse before it gets better collectively. Meanwhile, lots of us can grow well in green, blue, indigo. Yeah, right, absolutely. And continue self-healing and catharsis and release and 
um, being at least <laughs> well, increasingly well developed in green, blue, indigo in an increasingly uh, suffering human collective with uh, a lot of um, deception and um, rollout of nefarious purposes, which we should be quite aware of if we seek truth. In any case, I wish you well. Please take care of yourself and those around you. See you next time, and good night.